What's going on, everybody, and welcome to episode 12 of the Did You Hear podcast, part of the Blue Wire Hustle podcast network. Make sure to check out Blue Wire Hustle, and also make sure to check out our Villanova versus Seton Hall recap episode. We had a month break, a a hiatus from Villanova basketball, but the Wildcats are back, so make sure to check out that episode that that was released late last night. Also, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Twitter, at DidYouHearPod. I'm Emma Houghton. He's Pat Zhang. Uh, subscribe, rate, review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. And Pat, we have another huge football and baseball notes and news to get into. Yeah, definitely an exciting episode today where we're going to get to be uh, able to combine uh, two of them with you know conference championship weekend coming up for the NFL and some some free agency finally starting to take place here in Major finally. League Baseball as we are a month away from camp opening. Yeah, that's that's such good news to hear. I'm oh, so it's great. excited. Once pitchers and catchers report and once it starts to get warm out, then you can really envision opening day. You can start to dream of that last week of March, first week of April. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. But we I mean we started with 16 teams, right? Eight in each conference. Yep. And we're down to four. We're down to the conference championships and seven in each conference. Seven in each, right? The, the t- Chicago was eight and eight. That's why I was yes. thinking 16. Um, so, so 14 each. We're down to four. And we were relatively right. We have the three powerhouses in Buffalo, Green Bay, and Kansas City. And then Tampa Bay, we kind of had as a wild card coming in. Uh, not to pat myself on the back, but I had both these <laughs> matchups exactly correct. Okay, I think I had the same. <laughs> that no, I mean Tampa Bay was a, especially going into this year, people picked them as their Super Bowl favorite, and things have been clicking for them at the right time, and they looked good. The the turnover battle against the Saints was unbelievable. They've had their downs this season for for sure, especially in those regular season games against the Saints, but Bruce Arians team has really put it all together over the last I'd say even 6 weeks or so yeah. and are absolutely uh, locked and loaded and ready for a, for a big game on Sunday. So you want to start with the NFC then? Yeah, let's do that. And it, it's really since that bye week. The the Bucks had their bye, they came back reinvigorated and Antonio Brown turned into this deep threat and it's a lot for Green Bay to handle these two offenses again I mean what have Pat and I said this entire Hmm. month offense 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 and it's true for both of these yeah both all four of these teams are led by their offenses but I'm telling you it's going to come down to which defenses can step up and for Tampa Bay their biggest strength going into this game is the momentum they have in the turnover battle even though Green Bay doesn't turn the ball over often, they are, in fact, 11-0 when they don't turn the ball over. If Tampa Bay can get some things going, mix some things up, and get Rodgers a little bit unsettled, I think Tampa Bay has a chance. I definitely think Tampa Bay has a chance in this game, and, and I, I love Green Bay, and I'll talk about them in a second, but Tampa's very, very dangerous, especially on offense, as you said. And what I'm really looking at in this game is is the role of Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette for, for Tampa. Cam Akers ran for 90 yards this past weekend against Green Bay. Never really broke anything, but gave that Rams offense some solid movement. I like Tampa's backs. Fournette looked very good against the Saints this past Sunday. 
I think if they're able to keep Green Bay's defense a little more honest than you know, Brady in the play action game, especially with shots down the field could be very effective. The one thing I will say though, is that of the two defenses, I do like green Bay's more. I think that both, uh, both Smith's up front for, for the Packers are, are very dangerous and are going to be able to disrupt things in the passing game. And Jair Alexander is just such a phenomenal corner out there. The, the one problem for that is going to be what, and what I think Tampa is going to do is they're going to really get Chris Godwin involved. And I think they're going to look to the slot a lot. I think they're going to look to Gronkowski a lot. And I think they're going to go to the ground game. I wouldn't be shocked if Mike Evans doesn't have the biggest game on Sunday. But I do think that Tampa is going to have some other avenues to try to attack Green Bay. Yeah, Mike Evans is the easy on the the scouting report, limit him. And that that immediately takes away their biggest advantage. But the amount of weapons that Tampa Bay has is is mind-blowing and how many avenues Brady can go to. And I'll start with the running game first because – I know that repeat matchups can't take into account everything. We saw that with uh, Tampa Bay and the Saints. Tampa Bay was not going to lose for the third straight time. On the flip side, Tom and the Bucks beat the Packers 38-10 to 10 in week six. Mm-hmm. So both of these teams, I mean, Tampa Bay, they're looking to continue that momentum, keep Rodgers out of the pocket and blitz him and put him under pressure. And Green Bay is trying to undo everything they did wrong in that game. One of the things they did wrong was let Ronald Jones run. They rushed for 158 yards, him and Leonard Fournette combined. They let Gronk go off for 78 yards. The defense forced two turnovers. Brady was only under pressure on five of his 27 dropbacks. And we've talked a lot about how bad Brady is under pressure on the same coin. Rodgers is very bad under pressure. I think the biggest strength for Green Bay is containing the rush. When the mm-hmm. Bucks can't run the ball, they rely too heavily on the passing game, and that's when they struggle. Their uh, one loss against point. the Saints, when they only ran the ball five times, that was when all these question marks and these doubts started to come up about this Tampa Bay team. If the Packers can put pressure on Brady, absolutely eliminate the threat of the run because Ronald, jo- Ronald Jones is back in full force. The multitude of things he's had to go through. I was looking through it today. It's like COVID. He had a leg injury. He had a finger injury, all these things. He's back. He's running hard. That's a huge threat for them. If Green Bay can eliminate that option, I don't think the Tampa Bay defense will have that much luck against Rodgers and Devontae Adams. Yeah, so interesting where you went there actually feeds into my next point perfectly is talking about coaching. And I'm a big Bruce Arians fan, but the problem with Bruce Arians is that sometimes he's just a little too aggressive. As much as I love being aggressive in coaching, he can just fall in love with that passing game and look to sling it every single time. And I really believe that it's going to be key for Tampa Bay to keep this ball on the ground on Sunday against the Packers. And switching to the flip side for Matt LaFleur, I'm not sure people talk enough about how impressive this is what he has done since coming in here. I mean, he is the seventh coach since the Super Bowl era started to lead a team to back-to-back conference championships in his first two years with the team. And he's a rookie head coach doing that. He offensively, he has turned back the years with Aaron Rodgers. I, 
that as we, you were just talking about, that Green Bay offense is really, really strong. Aaron Jones, Jamal Williams get enough done on the ground. A.J. Dillon going to be someone that I think is going to factor in a lot more in the future with both of those backs being free agents, but starting to carve out a little bit of a role of himself. Devontae Adams, one of the better receivers in the NFL. Green Bay's offense is going to be really tough to contain. Aaron Rodgers is throwing it as, as strong as anyone right now. And I really do want to look at coaching and that I think if things aren't going the wrong way, Arians may be inclined to push the wrong button when I really haven't seen LaFleur implode in, in any way so far through two seasons. So I think it's kind of shocking being that Arians is what, 20 plus years older than LaFleur and has been yeah. in the NFL for so long. But I believe I'm going to go with Matt LaFleur for the coaching advantage in this game. Yeah, that's an, an excellent point because that's exactly what he does. He tries to push it, and that's why we saw so many issues in Tampa Bay at the beginning because Brady and Arians just weren't clicking, and Brady was being forced to throw all these passes downfield. And when they had some chemistry, when they were able to build that trust and the foundation of the relationship, that's when things started working. I saw something really interesting where it was just talking about how much Arians – was able to sacrifice and or compromise might be a better word. Brady said they wanted Antonio Brown. They brought Gronk back. They, they gave him all of these weapons to deal with. On the other hand, <laughs> the Packers didn't give Rodgers the weapons that he needed in the draft, especially instead they drafted his replacement. And that could be a lot of the motivation and the fuel that's driving Rodgers this year. But the chemistry between LaFleur and Rodgers cannot be understated. I think if you were to talk about some big storylines in this game, you would obviously say Rogers first time hosting conference championship at Lambeau, mm-hmm. how important that home field advantage is. You can talk about the coaching. And of course you're talking about Brady and Rogers and I'm blown away by how similar they are with no pressure versus pressure. Their, their quarterback ratings drop almost 50 points. Both of these guys, when they're under pressure, So it is just so imperative for both of these teams. Whichever defensive line is able to put more pressure on the quarterback, that could be the game breaker here. That easily decides the game for me. I think that's going to be key. And looking at it for both sides, they're actually decent pass rushes. As was said before with with Green Bay, with both Smiths up front. And then Tampa Bay is not a slouch either with Jason Pierre-Paul, who has been really strong for them uh, in over, since he came over in the trade with the Giants, as well as Shaq Barrett on the other edge. So you've got two guys that are able to really impact a game on the edge for both teams. So that'll be very interesting to watch. And then, as you said, storyline-wise, this this game is just perfect. It's Rodgers in this, you know, the revenge tour after Jordan Love gets drafted, doesn't get any help really with offensive weapons there, takes his team to the NFC Championship game at Lambeau trying to get back to the Super Bowl for the first time in almost a decade. You've got Tom Brady on the other side, leaves New England, gets his new team to the conference championship in his first year. And if he wins this game, gets to play it at home for the first time in the yeah. in Super Bowl era history to have a, a, a home team host the Super Bowl. So I guess one last thing before we transition then, who you got? I've thought a lot about it and I'm going to stick with Green Bay we're doing the same thing is that I have almost talked myself into picking Tampa. Really? But I still have to go with Green Bay. I think this game has potential to be fantastic. Yeah. But the thing is, Pat, we said that about every single game and we've been disappointed a lot. It's been a poor playoffs. (laughs) It has been. The offense has dwindled. I mean, the biggest, how much did we talk? Did we gush about the 
Baltimore Buffalo game, mm-hmm. and Baltimore scored three points. Oh, it was ugly. It was, it was but very I, I mean, Rodgers, Brady has all of the – everything you need, all the fireworks on paper to think that it's just going to be an absolute slugfest. And it's so funny because the AFC is the changing of the guard. Mm-hmm. It's the oldest quarterback in Baker Mayfield at 25 years old. And then you have the NFC with – Really the old guys. Yeah. Rodgers, Breeze, Brady. It's just the, – it's so interesting how – these old guys are still sticking around and Brady is still performing the way he did 15 years ago when his team, the 2003 Patriots were the only team to be repeat Super Bowl champions. Yeah. So it's, it's very exciting and should lead in to a strong game on Sunday. So as you said, from the old guys to the young guys, bring us to the AFC where the Buffalo Bills will travel to Kansas City to take on the Chiefs. The Kansas City Chiefs will be hosting their third consecutive AFC title game. They're only the second team in NFL history to do that. The other, the Philadelphia Eagles. And oh, who was their coach but Andy (laughs) Reid. So one man has now done it twice. What are you looking at for this game? First of all, Andy Reid and what he proved to us. Oh, Amazing. That, that divisional game. His, That's how you coach. The yeah. Just just qu- very quickly, because I know you, you're going to have a great point on this, but going from what we watched with Mike Vrabel and Mike yep. Tomlin the weekend before, where you play not to lose and you're punting conservatively, to going to the guy that goes for it on fourth and one with a pass with your backup quarterback in, with a trip to the AFC title game on the line, just underlines everything about what coaching should and should not be in today's NFL. That is my quick rant. I hand it back to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Andy Reid is what makes football fun. He embodies what makes football fun. It's putting the Browns into this calm state. You go and watch that replay of that fourth and one. No player on the field, on the Brown side of the field at least, thinks that Chad Henney is going to snap this ball. Nope. And he does. And it just – it, it was such a gutsy move. The point about the coaches last week doing the exact opposite. Andy Reid isn't afraid, and the players on his team pick up that energy. Quarterback, obviously, is the biggest storyline mm-hmm. for me. Patrick Mahomes is in concussion protocol. It's kind of a strange situation because when you saw the hit happen, he literally couldn't stand up straight, which was scary to watch. Yeah, but it wasn't – yeah, it wasn't some some – huge blow to the head it was a little funky watching him get pulled down and then hitting his head on the ground Annie Reed said after that he cleared the protocols then but there are still a lot of obvious hoops to go through the bottom line is that <laughs> Kansas City is superhuman w- with Patrick Mahomes and without him a lot of weaknesses are exposed Oh, for sure. And just to give you a statistic to to back that up, that would be my number. My did you hear would be that Kansas City has won 24 of the last 25 games, regular season and postseason, with Patrick Mahomes starting at quarterback. They do not lose when that man plays. It, it's basically gotten down to being that simple, that he is such, as we said, he's there's no one like him in the league when he's at full strength, when he's healthy. They, they're not going to lose. Now, what will be interesting is that, say even he plays on Sunday, which I think he will play on Sunday. Me too. 
I'm not sure he's going to be at full strength because while he started that game against Cleveland and just tore them to shreds, as soon as he picked up that foot injury, he, mm. it was a little more erratic with his throws. And if it's a, you know, a broken toe per se, or a sprain in there, that's not something that's going to heal in a week. No, so, it definitely seemed like that toe was bothering him. Yeah, I, I think it had a noticeable difference in him because mm-hmm. the way he started that game, it didn't look like he was going to throw an incompletion all day. Mm-hmm. And once, yeah, their first up, drive was unbelievable. No, I was. just thought that was game over when they were able to drive down <laughs> I did too. like that. So, no. you think the one, the the one thing that could maybe stop this team is Josh Allen, the yep. second most explosive player in the AF in the AFC. So during the regular season, Allen and Mahomes passed for more than forty five hundred yards, combined for seventy five passing touchdowns. 786 completions they both had passer ratings above 107 both had completion rates higher than 66 percent and the most important stat for me because I've talked so much about how the dual threat quarterback is becoming the norm they've rushed for a combined 729 yards Mm. what these two quarterbacks have done and what they signal for the future of the quarterback position is huge the biggest strength for Buffalo, for me, is that the Bills' offensive line is really strong lately. If Allen has time in the pocket, maybe he can make this offense look as strong as it did in the regular season because they have regressed in the playoffs playing better opponents, and maybe they can win in a shootout if Mahomes doesn't play. That's, but, that's truly all I'm giving them because I think if Mahomes plays, they're just, their offense is too seamless. And the Chiefs, Chiefs' pass rush is not great. I believe it ha- they logged just over 30 sacks uh, in, the, in the regular season. So while they have guys like Chris Jones that can really push the pocket from the interior, they don't have a lot of guys that are coming off the edge that can finish the play, unless Tano Passano, shout out Villanova, uh, puts in yeah. a career day. <laughs> yeah. And Buffalo has the worst tight end defense in the league. And guess who the Chiefs have? Some tight end. I don't know if you know his name. Oh, I did. I think he's just, oh, what's his name? The best tight end in the league? Yeah. Kelsey <laughs> is, the, I mean, the, Buffalo gives up an average of 62 yards to the tight end position. What is Kelsey probably averages like 90 yards a game. That's how good he's been. Offensive player of the year. I think he deserves it. It's, it's going to be a very dangerous mismatch for Buffalo there. I think they're going to have to get the safeties involved and really take the linebackers off of him because mm-hmm. otherwise this, things could get very... Uh, very dangerous very quickly for Kansas City. And then what I look at, what really scares me for Buffalo is just the complete lack of a run game. That's not Josh Allen. Uh, Zach Moss getting hurt really hurt this team. Devin Singletary just has not been able to come into his own yet. Uh, they really struggled against Baltimore, 32 yards rushing total in that game. I think it's going to give, as I just talked about how I feel that for Tampa to be able to beat green Bay, I think they're going to really work that ball on the ground and use those running options and Fournette and Jones. When I look at Buffalo, I just don't think they're going to be able to. And if you go back and look at the game that just happened over the weekend, when Cleveland was able to start to mount their comeback, it's because they were handing the ball to Nick Chubb yeah. and Nick Chubb was ripping through Kansas city. Yep. I don't think Buffalo is going to have the ability to do that, which means this game is going to solely fall on the arm and legs of Josh Allen. Now, I love Josh Allen. Mm -hmm. I think Josh Allen has a ton of potential. I think the Bills have a ton of big play potential against this Kansas City defense. Kansas City defense is better than what it's been. It's still not great. But the problem is, as we just said, if you're facing Patrick Mahomes on offense, 
good luck. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only way to put it, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. Kansas City on the ground game as well. Clyde Edwards-Alaire might be back. Yeah. You add him to Daryl Williams, who's already done a more than serviceable, serviceable job filling in with Le'Veon Bell as a third back. If Kansas, if this gets to a point where maybe Mahomes is shaken up a little bit and Kansas City wants to run the ball more, they have the ability to do that with three guys. Buffalo just Which doesn't I n- have that. Yeah. Going into this season, I never would have thought we would no. have said that. The no. run game has become a strength for the Chiefs. The unfortunate thing for them is that rush defense is a huge weakness, and Buffalo can't exploit it. Nope. They don't, don't have so. that rush threat, just like you said. Pat, the, the Bills didn't rush the ball in the first 16 minutes of the game against Baltimore. Yeah. And they had it, one rush in the first 15 plays, and it was a scramble by Allen. In a way, I think it shows strong self-awareness from Sean McDermott and Brian Dable on offense that they know that the run game is just not, it it doesn't get it done for Buffalo unless it is Josh Allen taking off. But on another way, thinking of Steve Spagnuolo, defensive coordinator for Kansas city, he knows that it's all about the passing game and that's, that's what he has to prepare for in this game. And that's an advantage to Kansas city that they know that they do not have to devote a ton of time game planning to how to stop the Buffalo run game. Exactly. And it just makes, it makes the Bills one-dimensional, and we're acting as if their passing game isn't a huge threat. That's obviously what got them here in the first place. But you saw the same thing with Baltimore, just flipped. Their pass game was non-existent, so they were a one-dimensional running team. The Bills were able to limit them in the rush game, and they couldn't make big plays down the stretch. They scored three points. So I think it's, a, it's scary to, for me thinking about how the Bills are able going to keep up with a Mahomes-led offense. But let's just – so let me ask you this. Let's imagine that Mahomes is out. We hear in two days that Mahomes isn't playing. What's the Chiefs' game plan? Chiefs' game plan then is going to be, well, as we've heard from Andy Reid, they will trust Chad Henney if they yeah, have And to. they did. <laughs> and they did. Uh, I think you're, you, at that point you're going to see a ton of the ground game. I mean, the, then this game basically mostly will fall on the shoulders of – if Edwards Alaire is playing the Williams Bell trio, you're going to see a lot of rotation there. And but I really don't think that Andy Reid is going to do what a lot of coaches would do in this situation, where they just completely shut the playbook down. I think he's going to let Chad Henney play if Chad Henney had to come in, and they will stretch the field. They will look to do their motion plays. They will look to get Tyree Kill the ball in space. I'm not sure their game plan will change too much. It's just who's executing it back there. That's a good point. You still have Tyree Kill. You still have Travis Kelsey. You still have McCole Hardman. I mean, you can go on and on. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing for me, Bill's special team, their special teams unit is one of the best in the league. Their kicker, Tyler Bass, hadn't missed a field goal all season before missing two against Baltimore. So that's a bad look there. Yes. Some Some recency there. <laughs> but I think – it could come down. We saw it in the Saints game. Deontay Harris almost won the game single-handedly for the Saints if there hadn't been a penalty that brought it back. Sure. Maybe, this, maybe the Bills mix things up in the special teams unit, but I think you're totally right about Chad Henney. I think they, they put the ball in his hands and they trust him, and I'll, I'll leave you with a corny hashtag. Anything is possible. Oh, I love it. <laughs> the concussed <laughs> Patrick Mahomes tweeted that out right after the game he he did which was great I do really believe that Mahomes is going to play on Sunday yeah regardless but all right so that leads it to one more thing before we transition then to to baseball what is your prediction 
I have I have the Chiefs. Uh, honestly, I, I have the Chiefs either way. I really think that if Chad Henney has to play, Tyreek Hill will have a career game, Travis Kelsey will have a career game, and Williams will have a career game. I don't mm. think Edwards Alaire will play. I haven't read that positive of things about his recovery. I wouldn't bet he plays either. Yeah. Uh, to to be fair there. And while in the NFC, I think Green Bay pulls this thing out by three, a, a very close mm-hmm. game. I think Kansas City wins by 10 in, in this really? game. Really? I, I do. I just – that, I, and it's nothing against Buffalo because as – listen, I think you hear me say this every single week. I love what the Buffalo Bills have <laughs> built. I think it's fantastic. I think they are a team to be reckoned with for a long time in, in the AFC especially. It's just it, – if the Chiefs offense is going to be the Chiefs offense, if Patrick Mahomes is going to play, if the only weapon, say, he's missing is Edwards Alaire, they're not stopping. And you're yeah. not stopping the Kansas City Chiefs at home with a the, with the largest crowd in the NFL as well, which mm-hmm. doesn't get talked about too much, but it makes a difference that they have fans and they have a decent number of fans in attendance for these playoff games. And I just I think they're going to ride that arm all the way to uh, all the way to Tampa Bay for another Super Bowl appearance. I think if any team is going to repeat, it's this current Kansas City team. I agree as well. Yeah, and but then we have so then we have Green Bay and and uh, Kansas City in the in the Super Bowl. We both do. Yes, we yeah. both have a Green Bay Kansas City Super Bowl, which I think would be great. But the funny part is, even if both teams are flipped and you get a Buffalo Tampa, <laughs> that is still a great Super Bowl. And yeah. you but that doesn't always happen. But no, I, it doesn't. I think I mean, the, the NFL will be happy regardless of how these games turn out. Think about the last two years we had defense-based teams in San Francisco and mm-hmm. L.A. Yep. against New England and Kansas City. And I, I hate to say it, but those games are just less interesting to watch versus when you have Aaron Rodgers versus – uh, Patrick Mahomes or Tom Brady versus Josh Allen. There's just a different dynamic when we're absolutely awed by how good these quarterbacks are. Yeah, I think non Rams and Patriots fans are still recovering from watching yeah. that Super Bowl from two years ago. Because <laughs> it's not like the Pats impressed anybody. In that <laughs> <either>. <laughs> That's true. They did come away with the ring, though. Yeah. But, all right. Cool. So that that'll do it for football, and then we can move into some some baseball. Yeah. Just cool I'm for so us excited. to be able to do a combo episode. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking a lot about how slow moving this off season has been, and we mm-hmm. finally got some traction. It's not and not necessarily any deals that absolutely pop off the page, except for one of the big four. DJ LeMahieu re-signed with the Yankees. That is actually part of my craziest number of the week stat. So I think we should save him. But we've got what four or five other. So yeah. Pat, why don't you pick one and something that stuck out to you about one of these deals? Yeah, sure. So I'll go back to one that is from the same team then, which broke uh, over the weekend. And that was that Corey Kluber has signed a one-year deal with the New York Yankees. Now, I look at this deal kind of in two ways. First off, I think it's very interesting for the Yankees. And it gives them a guy that if he hits, I mean, it's it's exciting. I mean, you go back to the last healthy year he pitched, which was 2018, 215 innings in what was a truly phenomenal year at a 2-9 ERA, uh, 20-7 as much as I put very little into record. But, of course, you're now two years removed. He's barely thrown 36 innings in those two years. 
it's a little risky coming off the injuries that he came off, especially in 2019, 2020 was more of a freak thing. But how I also look at it is I find this move incredibly risky in the fact that I do not believe Masahiro Tanaka is going to be a Yankee again. So if they're, if they're replacing Tanaka, who while doesn't have the, I'll say ceiling that a Kluber signing may have at least gives you a pretty solid floor. Mm-hmm. Kluber's floor is a little scary if this thing doesn't get put back together and they're losing some consistent pitching in that while not adding, or as of right now, at least not adding another arm. So while yes, I understand the excitement from Yankee fans that thought, Oh, this is a great signing. I still think they need to do more for this to make sense. Hmm. I, I'm taking in what you just said because I really didn't hadn't thought about it that way at all it actually seems like Masahiro Tanaka is going to pitch in Japan I think he will from from how it sounds it seems like he wants the money and the Japanese teams are going to give it to him whereas MLB teams aren't I'm guessing Toronto or Japan for him yeah I as a Red Sox fan was actually devastated Mm -hmm. when Kluber went to the Yankees would have been a perfect fit it would have been a perfect fit the reason I guess I have been so high on Kluber is because of all the reports that came out when he had his pitching session. Yep. And these reporters were making him out to be the 2014 to 2018 Corey Kluber, the second or third best pitcher in the league. I mean, legitimately for four years straight, he was the second or third best pitcher in the league behind Kershaw and Max Scherzer. Second most <laughs> Jacob DeGrom. Pitched, <clears throat> Jacob DeGrom. But for some reason... He's actually been 2014. He was 2014. There. Yes. No. Yeah. No. That was Degrom's rookie season. Yeah. But I mean, second second most innings pitched and third best wins above replacement in that span. That's unbelievable for a pitcher. Oh, his his Indians it, years were yeah. fantastic. It's just it's been injury and it's, the and the fact that he's gotten up there in age now at age 34, almost 35, which scares you a little bit. It does. The freak accident that you mentioned. He was hit. A line drive came back at him and fractured his arm. One inning in. So, one inning it like that was, uh, you can't make that stuff up, no. truly. So, you give him that year, I'm, I'm really curious to what that year would have looked like because then we get some sort of sense. And then he barely pitched at all. Did he pitch at all last in this shortened season? Yeah, that was that was it. With the he pitched one inning and had the line drive come off of him, and that this, was his in twenty twenty. Yeah, yes. I'm messing up the years. Yes, but and that I, was his only start with the Texas Rangers, who traded yeah. for him. So, it's high risk. I understand. I completely agree that the Yankees have more to do because relying on either Davey Garcia or Michael King or Domingo Herman. That's not the option that you need behind Garrett Cole if Luis Severino is continuing to recover from Tommy John's surgery. Yep. But it's low, it's a high risk, high reward for mm-hmm. me. One year, 11 million, which to the Yankees is nothing. If Corey Kluber reverts back to even his 2017 self, you think 2014 when he was, what, 29 or 30 is out the window? Even if it's back to his. 32 year season he was still one of the best pitchers in baseball the Yankees are absolutely lauded for this move and if he stinks yeah yeah, I mean you didn't really have to pay for him you're hoping Severino comes back and you're hoping they go out and get one other guy whether that be I don't even know I mean maybe James Paxton comes back which I think is possible three or four three or four spot yeah it's 
it's that's how I'm kind of looking at this move is that I feel like you need to this I need to see this with the full picture before I can fully give it a grade for the Yankees. I do, as I said, I think it's worth the risk for them because they are adding a guy with that high ceiling. But if the move really is, in a sense, to knock out Kluber in, I think that is a that's a bigger risk than a lot of people are looking at it. Yeah. And I, I, it obviously has potential to backfire. It obviously has a chance that Corey Kluber, I don't think you will ever see him get to what he was even in 2018 most recently. Yeah. But if you can get even three quarters of that, you know, you're getting a great pitcher and then of course you're for it. And the, the other big thing is that it's a one-year commitment, as yeah. you said. So things, things could be worse contract-wise. Uh, so I, I give it an incomplete just because <laughs> I want to see the rest of how the Yankees approach yeah. this. According to expected war, I think this is Fangraph's expected war, the Yankees rotation with Kluber now ranks first in the league in expected war. Wow, that's impressive. I wouldn't have guessed that. So they're giving Kluber a lot of credit here. They are. But but when you think of it as a swap, which is very interesting, Tanaka or Kluber for Tanaka, that's a really interesting way to think about it because for some reason, Tanaka isn't appreciated. I'm not sure why people don't appreciate Tanaka and the durability that he brought to nope. this rotation. When you think about when the, when the Yankees went out and got Garrett Cole, you expected them to give these second and third rotation options so that it wouldn't just be Garrett Cole than nothing. But I mean, again, Tanaka just imploded in the postseason too, but I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm a little bit more optimistic that Kluber is going to be a good option for them. Yeah. And that's fair. What this comes down to is all about your appetite for risk. Are, yeah. are you okay going with the guy that has a chance to really hit it big? Or would you rather go with the guy that you know, you kind of know what to expect with it? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess there's still a chance that Tanaka comes back. I don't, from all reports, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. But we'll, we'll see how it rides out. Um, I know you are very interested yeah. in another pitcher that was dealt last or two nights ago now from when you're listening to this. Yep. Three-deal trade. Once again, Patrick's Mets are in the news for having a career offseason. But the pitcher I want to focus on is Joe Musgrove. Mm-hmm. So the three-team three deal. The San Diego Padres are active once again. They get right-handed pitcher Joe Musgrove. Two out of the three teams that have been active this offseason are in this trade together. Yeah, literally. So Musgrove goes to San Diego. He's actually a San Diego native, so that's pretty cool. The Pirates get a bunch of prospects who, again, we talked about it a lot when the Snell and Darvish trades went through four or five years out from Major League Ready. Mm -hmm. So that signals what type of rebuild the Pirates are going through, which is unfortunate to say the least for Pittsburgh fans. And then the Mets get left-handed pitcher Joey Lucchese. So I'll focus on Musgrove. He's 28 years old. I would say this free agent pitching class has been interesting because you have Trevor Bauer and then you have a couple feet and then you have the rest. Then you have Jake Odorizzi, Tanaka. I think Musgrove was in that second bunch. In five seasons, he had a 4-3-3 ERA. He was actually the 2020 opening day starter for the Pirates. So the Pirates were starting to build around this guy. He had an unbelievable 2020 season. And then he catapults himself into this conversation where he's another solid rotation guy for the Padres, who at this point are literally, Pat, building a nine-man starting rotation. It's unbelievable what A.J. Preller is doing, as a side note. 
No, it it definitely is. And why I find this move so interesting is that what you hear all the time, that search for top-end arms, top-end arms. I'm looking for an ace. I'm looking for that two-guy to slot in behind it. And I look at what the Padres have done this year, or especially this offseason, and they've kind of gone for that quantity over quality approach. Not to say that, you know, you Darvish and Blake Snell are not solid pitchers, but I don't think either of them, Snell could be in this category, are that top, top, top of the line starter. Yeah. Then you add in a Denelson Lamette. Then you add in now a Joe Musgrove, who's going to be what, your fourth starter? Yeah. That's fantastic. Literally. Your fifth starter now comes between Chris Paddock, who had a very erratic second season, but had a great rookie year. Mackenzie Gore, who I have talked about, who I think is going to be incredibly impressive once he eventually gets his chance to get to the big leagues. I, I love that. And I really like the approach that Preller's taking, that he is going to work on filling out this rotation to make sure that there is a quality arm that goes out there every single day, rather than just going top heavy on it. And I think that's a very strong approach to things. Me too. I mean, injuries, they're they're devaluing injuries. Yeah. By, by having all these guys, because they're saying, even if somebody like Darvish goes down, you have a guy in Joe Musgrove now who can step up and Lamette who can step up. They lost Davies, they lost Lucchese. And now they have all these guys to, to fill that. But to talk about Musgrove a little bit specifically and why I think he fits so well into this rotation and why he deserves a lot of credit. He had eight starts in 2020, the shortened season, just under four ERA, just under 40 innings pitched. He had a 12.5 K rate through nine innings. That was his career best. He missed four weeks of the season with an injury, but he closed the season right before he went into free agency with or went onto the trade block really with this Pirates team that everybody knew was rebuilding two consecutive 10 plus strikeout starts three Mm. hits combined in zero runs that is how you make a case for yourself his strikeout rate and his opposing exit velocity are both in the 90th percentile to put it bluntly he strikes out a ton of guys and even when opposing batters do make contact it's not hard contact Musgrove's stuff is really, really good. His curveball and his slider especially, this was actually crazy. Ten starters had a whiff rate of at least 50% on one specific pitch type in 2020. Two starters had multiple pitchers meeting that criteria. One, the AL Cy Young winner, some guy named Shane Bieber, who was the Mm. best pitcher in baseball. The second guy, Joe Musgrove. He brings a lot to this Padres rotation, and he could be the fourth starter. And, and that's what's interesting about him is that I think a lot of it's been lost on the fact he's been on Pittsburgh, a team that has been very poor for the last couple of seasons. He's now going to go out to a team that's going to get a ton of attention this year with the offseason that they had. And as you said, is not going to be asked to pitch as a starter or as a, or as a two guy, or excuse me, as a one or a two guy. And then to your point as well with hard hit, I mean, 25% of his uh, balls put in play are are hard hit for him, went over 70% or soft or medium contact. So he really avoids that hard hit percentage. And the other thing is his strikeout to walk percentage is about 24%. And that's a pretty big number. So it adds in a really, really solid guy into this Padres rotation. And it continues. Listen, I, I, I hate that this is how it's been, but it's not like it's just us talking about it this way. 
it is the Padres, it is the Mets, and it is the White Sox. And those are the three teams that have really gone out and tried to do things this offseason. Yeah, and it's paying dividends. And these are the teams that are buoyed by these young cores. These owners, in the Mets case especially, have money to spend. And they're putting the pieces in place where they can contend. And the most important part of this entire thing, once again, the Padres completed this deal without giving up any of their premium prospects. And this is a little bit different from the Snell-Darvish case because Joe Musgrove isn't going to get the type of prospects that Snell or Darvish would have entailed. But still, the Padres have top two, maybe top three rotation in baseball, and they still have the – I think it was the seventh best farm system in the game. That's an unreal thing to say, that both can be so good at the same time. You just don't see that very often. For sure. And important also to look at is that they have Musgroves until 2023 when he's a free agent. So you're able to get a a little bit of control for him, which is very, very important in these type of deals. And it's also why I like the Mets going out and getting Lucchese because they have him for multiple years before A, before he even hits arbitration, and then B, before he hits free agency. Yeah. All right. I know you wanted to circle back. We'll get into our numbers of the week here. And you wanted to go to a guy that ended up on one of the teams we just spoke about. Yeah, so LeMahieu, for all the rumors that went around with the division between LeMahieu and the Yankees, the Yankees had no option but to sign back, in my opinion, one of the best players in the game. I truly think that DJ LeMahieu is a franchise-changer baseball player. I think he's unbelievable, and I think if the Yankees didn't sign him, it would be absolute chaos. Before I get into him, John Lester signed with the Nats. I think that solidifies the NL East as the most competitive division. Just your quick thought on that. I, so I like it as a depth move for the Nationals. I'm not sure how much more John Lester has to give. I, I don't yeah. think it's going to impact that rotation too much for them. What it is, is it gives them a clubhouse guy that I think will be great, uh, which is important for that, for that Nationals clubhouse. I think he'll be nice to be able to slot in towards the back end of that rotation since, of course, we all know it's going to fall on Corbin, Strasburg, and Scherzer anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's not like there's going to be a ton of pressure on Lester like there was in Chicago. But I'd be lying if I told you I think that Lester is going to come out and have a a great season. But I don't think that's what the Nats expected. No, I I I don't think so That's why I think this move is so good. He's one of the best career postseason left-handed pitchers ever. I think he goes in there, he gives that veteran presence that some of these young players like Juan Soto – need and did you hear pat john lester has made 30 starts in every full season since 2008 i don't care what his era is i don't care that his fastball velocity is falling so fast you can't even believe it (laughs) i care that he's going to go out there and eat up some innings and hopefully this offense is going to pick up after them and i think that's all the nats need they need that fifth day starter even that fourth day starter after they lost anibal sanchez yeah, biggest thing for me is impact in the clubhouse because yeah. as as you say with, with how it's dropping, I do not project him out very well for this season, but I do think that he can be an important guy behind the scenes for them. Yeah. All right, that's all I wanted to say there. And I, I was hoping Lester would reunite with Boston too, but Boston's in a, they're in a strange sense. place here. Would have made we're, sense. We're not going to get into, it, into this episode. <laughs> I, I'm not mentally equipped for that. Okay, I'm going to – here I go. DJ LeMahieu. Six years, $90 million. I think it was just about the ballpark that people were expecting. I think you're seeing JT Real Muto and George Springer getting more than that. But just the fact that the Yankees were finally able to pull the trigger was what mattered here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, go ahead. 
No, I, I was just going to agree with you and say they yeah. needed to do this. There was no option B, C, or D in this. They had to re-sign DJ LeMahieu. There were no excuses. Right. And they, it took a little while, but they eventually got it done. Yeah, I was concerned that it took so long. I thought there might be some issues between the two teams. But the bottom line is that in the fluctuating New York I don't know what do you what we want the ball club just the amount of things that have gone wrong for New York over the past couple of years injuries not making the post uh, the World Series for the first time in a decade DJ LeMahieu has been their calming most stable presence definitely the craziest number I heard this week was two and that is the number of times the shift has been placed on DJ in the last five seasons. I love that. I spent most of this, most of today going through this because I think it is so fascinating. Since 2016, he's had just over 2,700 plate appearances. The shift has been put on him twice in that span. That is unbelievable. So I'll bring you, I'll bring you through those two times too because technically they don't even count. Hmm. So the, the last real shift shift being defined as when three infielders are on one side of the bag, either the left side or the right side. The last time a real shift was put on him was July of 2016. So that was before he's had 2,700 appearances after that, two times after that. The first time was when the Mets actually intentionally walked him back when catchers literally stuck their mid out and the pitcher threw four balls that weren't even close. The second baseman just so happened to be on the left side of the base, which technically qualified as a shift. The second time was this season in 2020 against the Blue Jays. At the time, the Yankees were up 19-3. to The rookie backup infielder Santiago Espinal was pitching, and the pitch was thrown at 48.7 <laughs> miles per hour. In that case, again, the second baseman just so happened to be on the left side of the bag, which technically labeled it as a shift. Incidentally, that was the slowest pitch ever hit for a home run. I, wanna just, I wanted to put this in perspective because these numbers prove how valuable of a hitter DJ LeMahieu is. No player has gone to the opposite field more than DJ LeMahieu in these past five seasons. No hitter with at least 500 at-bats, has a lower pull percentage than DJ LeMahieu. I think I wanted to ask your opinion on shifts because mine is that I don't think they necessarily affect the outcome of the game that greatly. I think hitters should just get better and beat them. DJ LeMahieu is that guy. To put it in perspective, Joey Gallo on the other side of the spectrum saw more than two shifts in a game 55 times this season. DJ LeMahieu saw two shifts across five seasons. It's unbelievable. And that's why you pay DJ LeMahieu any amount of money. That's why they gave him six years so that they are locking down this guy, the top of their lineup, the leader in their clubhouse, because he is one of the best players in baseball for that exact reason. Yeah, it's a phenomenal number. And the, the best way that I would describe LeMahieu is that he is the anti-Major League Baseball. 
of what yeah. it has been the the last five plus years. I mean, he is a guy that that puts the ball in play, that spreads it over the field. He's a fantastic fielder. He's a good base runner. He he is so important to the Yankees because of how he balances that lineup. I mean, you look at it and it's the judges, the Stantons, the Voits. It's a lot of all or nothing guys. And what LeMahieu does is he does all the little things. Like I said, he sprays the ball down the, around the field. He's a good situational hitter. As I said, he can play multiple positions and play them well in the infield. He's so important to them. The The shift number just really sums it up. And <laughs> just the Yankees would not be able to mount a World Series charge like they are going to in 2021 without him as part of their infield. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. He, so I think if you're an average fan, you're obviously drawn to players like Judge and Stanton more mm-hmm. than LeMahieu. You're drawn to guys like Christian Yelich even more than DJ LeMahieu. And Christian Yelich isn't putting up the home run numbers that Stanton is. But there's something just more attractive about Christian Yelich's game on the surface. DJ LeMahieu, just, he, he literally does everything for me. I think he is such a good ball player. And there's also a lot to say about young guys like Tim Anderson and Fernando Tatis Jr., Ronald Acuna Jr. I'm putting this in air quotes, like writing the, changing the unwritten rules of the game and all that. And that makes baseball fun. But DJ LeMahieu is also the epitome of baseball. Mm. And he's the epitome of, you know, sticking your bat out there for a ball in the outside corner and lobbing it over the first baseman's head and getting that guy from third in to score. He is everything about a leadoff hitter and hitting for contact that matters. And that's why you're incredibly right. As Giancarlo Stan could hit 60 home runs again. And I still think DJ LeMay, who's heads and shoulders, the most important player on this Yankees team. Yeah, he is so key. And that's why, as we have said all winter, and we'll continue to say it now, they needed to get this done. They got this done. This was the Yankees' most important piece of business and now, as I said earlier, we'll see if they can continue to address that pitching rotation yeah. because that's yeah. what scares me a little bit for them. They still have a ton of issues, and they still mm-hmm. need some depth, some depth at positional. Uh, oh, for positional sure. Holes too. They've they've got some holes. They have a fantastic starting lineup. Yeah. But they've got some holes depth wise. So we'll see if they're able to fill it out. Brian Cashman is a very strong general manager. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I I will throw it then to my number, um, which I found really really interesting and so when you talk about dj lemayhu you're going more of a throwback baseball player well this gives you kind of the new age of college basketball in a way and so my number is 60 and that is how many years it's been since an ap poll came out without north carolina duke or kentucky ranked and that's what you got this week i could have bet i swear to god a million dollars that you're going to do this Pat and oh, I don't course. tell each other no. our numbers because we want to be caught off guard. Pat, I wrote notes on this number because I knew you were going to do it. <laughs> well, you know is, I'm going to get drawn so to it. This is so you. This is so you. This is the storyline you've been talking about since the beginning. So say it. Oh, thank you very much. But no, it, it is the storyline I'm saying is that this is not your your dad's college basketball anymore. This is not your grandfather's college basketball anymore. The game has changed so much and you're looking at the top teams in the nation right now it's as we said it's gonzaga 
It's Baylor. Iowa is a national title contender. You've got Villanova. Michigan plays stifling defense. Texas does the same thing. You've got Creighton coming in out of the Midwest. You've got Texas Tech down there. The yeah. Alabama is scoring a ridiculous amount of points on offense with Villanova transfer Javon Quinterly. This is a different age of college basketball. It is not all about your Duke, UNC, Kentucky, UCLA's. It has even Kansas. It has changed, and I love that. I love that. So when I saw this stat, as you know, there was no way I could stay away from it. I had to say it. Um, and I just, while some people I think will look at this and say it's not good for college basketball. Mm-hmm. I will look you straight in the eyes and tell you this is great for college basketball. Yeah. We need to get away from the blue blood, from the reliance on the one and dones. We've talked about it before. It's more fun when the veterans show up. And when you have, I mean, it was Dayton last year. Mm -hmm. It's Iowa this year. These senior guys, it's Villanova seemingly most years too. The stat in this story that really stuck out to me too was how long Duke was in the top 25. Oh, my God, 91 weeks Mm -hmm. since 2016. That's unbelievable. That dominance can't be understated. But I think what you're trying to say and what's coming through very clear is that it's this new age where these sleeper teams are putting things together and these new coaches are creating new game plans that are making college basketball more different and, as a result, more fun to watch when we're not just seeing the same one-and-done players go out there and then transition to the league every year. I absolutely love what we're seeing out of the sport right now. And it was, as, as I said, it was just too much for me to pass up. <laughs> no, it's true. I, I mean, now Kansas, who I think maybe a fringe blue blood program, were you willing to put them in that category? I, I'd say Kansas is a blue blood. And I'd yeah. also say that they're the best of the ones that are, or they're the best of all the blue bloods, the traditional blue bloods out there yeah. this season. Yeah. So now they, they actually had the record before. They've been ranked for 229 weeks. Now second, now that Duke is out, is Gonzaga, 87 mm. weeks. So I think that's cool. I think, I mean, again, when we're looking at the college basketball landscape now, there's not very much parity because of how, Gonzaga, how good Gonzaga and Baylor are. But it's just cool to see some, some new blood in there. And <laughs> people like to see Duke, UNC, and Kentucky lose. That's just a fact right now just because of how it good is. they've been in the past. But I like when we see new teams in there. I like when we see a Dayton or a Texas Tech or a Virginia or, you know, stuff like that. It makes the sport fun. I, I think so, too. And it should lead into what will be a very, very fun uh, February, March, and a little bit of April yeah. for, for college basketball. So I think the sport's very healthy and, and doing a very, a very solid job with uh, bringing in some new faces. And it's exciting, as Me you said. And now we finally have some Villanova basketball to watch. Finally. So we'll be looking forward to watching that. But all right, that will do it for us. Make sure you check out all the podcasts on the Blue Wire Hustle Network of Podcasts. A lot of different shows for a lot of different things you may be interested in. Also, make sure to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and as well as follow us on Twitter and Instagram to let us know what you think. We will have a Villanova episode that will be posted the night before this comes out on Wednesday morning. So if you're looking for a recap on the Seton Hall game, Emma's got you covered with that one. Otherwise we will be back at it on Saturday after Villanova has another game against Providence. Fingers crossed, of course, but otherwise Emma, that's a wrap.